Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk again to Imam Tom. Welcome back, sir. Thank you so much. It's been a while. I'm happy to, to be back. It has indeed. Yes, it's good to see you again. Um, as you will note, um, because this, this is a, I forget which number in this series it is, but uh, Tom has kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. And today, Tom continues uh, his reflections on uh, the fascinating book by Professor Talal Assad. There we have it, entitled Formations of the Secular uh, Christianity, Islam, Modernity. And this really is an extraordinary book. I was reading it again uh, today. It's well worth having a look. Um, so, um, Tom, would you like to um, share with us uh, your, your views on the, the latest portion of this book? Sure. And I'll just give that brief synopsis to everybody if you're, you know, uh, to put the map in front of you, the bird's eye view. So the book is divided into thirds, right? The first third is about the secular as a philosophical category. The second third, which we'll be discussing today, is about secularism, which is a political project in order to um, make the secular institutionalized and entrenched and spread it across the world. And then the third, next video, inshallah ta'ala, uh, is going to be about secularization. So he's going to look at a case study in yeah. which these things actually play out in in real time. Yeah. Uh, so after Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa sallam, So today we're talking about the second third of the book on secularism. Um, and it comes sequentially after the secular because Esed's, one of his main sort of reflections is that when we're talking about um, different paradigms, they assume a certain subject. Okay, so we use a word such as human, uh, and actually, I'll tell a brief story that actually illustrates this nicely. Someone once left me a comment in our YouTube channel um, saying, "Well, I prefer to identify myself as a human first and a Muslim second, because that way I can connect with everybody, and then you know they can sort of get to know after we've got this sort of baseline respect for each other. Then I can go in and explain my beliefs and things like that." And my response to this person was. Well, the problem with identifying yourself as a human being first is that there's no consensus as to what that implies, or there's no consensus as to what that means, right? Whereas when we identify as Muslims first, this is something that is a category that's given to us from a divine source. And so our rights and duties are more or less clearly explained to us, our position in the world, where we're going, the afterlife, you know, uh, we have to hold the door open for somebody, or we have to give zakat, or we have to take care of the poor. All of this is clearly spelled out. 
Whereas when we're identifying as a human being, there's no consensus as to what that means, right? You might find some people that say, well, you're a human and I'm a human. And so that should actually develop empathy and sympathy between us. And we should feel a sense of camaraderie and mutual respect and uh, tolerance for each other. And then you go to somebody else and they'll say, well, no, that means that you're my competition, right? We've only got so many resources. We've only got so many uh, mates and there's only so many degrees in the world, uh, you know, and spots in the college or whatever it is. And now you're my competition. So, uh, and the only tool that we have to adjudicate or to decide who's right is reason, which is also something that's not objective. It's something that there are different traditions of reason. There are different, um, you know, things that make up the practice of reason. And so there's no consensus. If you want to I identify as a, as a human first, there's no consensus as to what that implies, the duties, the rights, the responsibilities. And so Esad's now working backwards. He's saying, okay, we're in this secular space. We have secularism. It's here. What is the subject? What's the subject that is assumed, okay, uh, in the human? What type of human are we talking about? Um, if we want to talk about human rights, what is human and what are rights? Mm. Uh, because figuring out those two concerns is going to figure out, well, what type of governance do we need to secure, to secure those rights? Mm. Given, do we need a state? Do we need a khilafa? Do we need a this? Do we need a that? It all goes back to our idea of what is human. Or what is the subject, you know, specifically human, then moving to, okay, what are the rights that that subject has? And then how are we going to safeguard those rights? So he starts with the human, and that's really a significant place to start because it's supposedly universal, right? And that's the appeal of the person who kind of made this initial comment. The appeal of saying that, well, I'm a human first, it seems at first reading that this is something universal that everybody will be able to get on board with. But Esed wants to show us that uh, it's not the case. We we there might be an abstract level at which everybody belongs to the category of human. However, in practice, um, people are treated some of them more human than others, and this isn't merely a defect of um, of application, but this is actually built into the structure of identifying people as human in mm. the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're, we're chasing the shadows, as it were, uh, of, of what the secular is, that's kind of the theme that he introduced in the um, in the intro of the book. And so what is the type of subject or what's the type of human being that secularism assumes? Um, we covered in the last section that uh, that subject or that human has a particular relationship to pain or a particular understanding of pain. Um, one where something like solitary confinement would be seen as much more acceptable than, say, public whipping or lashes or things like this, right? Um, it's not, it's not um, imminent. It's not self-evident why one should be privileged over the other. This is a very particular conception of what pain is, but it's something that is taken as self-evident in the modern context, and so it reveals what type of subject we're dealing with in the secular space. Um, similar when it comes to uh, in individual torture versus collateral damage. That's another thing that he introduces. So individual torture is is seen as scandalous, right? Um, even if we lack the the political theory or the political mechanisms to hold torturers accountable, you know, the average Joe on the street, they're going to condemn torture. They're going to think that torture is a bad thing. It's a despicable thing. States, as he as Esed alerted us to, states have to deny that they do it. At least if you want to be considered a modern state, a, de a democratic state. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They can't openly admit that they torture. They have to play this whole although, game. Although we, we now know because it's been exposed in the media plenty of times to mm. WikiLeaks and so on that many moderns... Uh, defenders of human rights and liberty, like the, the great United States of America, uh, have routinely in, involved uh, themselves in torturing black sites, for example, throughout Eastern Europe, where Muslims are kidnapped off the streets of Italy and other places, taking these places and, and are tortured. And this is all part of the public record. It's not some kind of a conspiracy theory. So you, you have the, the formality of rejecting and denouncing torture mm-hmm. in those regimes that do it by the United States State Department, for example, and then the reality behind the scenes, you have Guantanamo Bay, you have mm-hmm. CIA black sites uh, existing. Uh, and yeah. so we have this kind of double reality, right. which many people see through, of course, they're, they're, they're yeah. not taken in by this. Right. But the fact that it would recover, excuse me, the fact that it would require a PR department or PR techniques, right, to, right. they don't call it torture, they'll call it um, advanced. Enhanced interrogation. my favorite euphemism. It's like yes. classical damage. Oh dear, a bit of classical damage. I've knocked over my vase in my room. Yes. <laughs> what you actually mean is you killed countless numbers of people and maimed them and deprived them of life. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so so the torture is still scandalous. However, collateral damage, we don't blink an eye at um, when it comes to the collateral damage of modern weaponry, right, aerial bombardment, uh, let alone you know, war crimes and atrocities such as, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan um, yeah. or the starvation of, you know, half a million Iraqi children during the, the sanctions, right? This oh, is all considered... Sorry, sorry, uh, I, I know, it was the last time I interrupted, I promise. What's going on in Afghanistan oh, at the please. moment where, where the Biden, uh, uh, Biden, President Biden of your country uh, is, is withholding vast sums of, of money from the Afghan yes. government resulting right. in... Uh, the starvation and malnutrition of countless Afghanis because of 9-11, which happened, I forget how many decades ago it was, but this is collateral damage of a policy that is meant to to punish the Afghan government for its alleged policies on on women's education, for example. So this is ongoing as as we speak. Yes, fantastic. And that's going to really hit home with a point that Assad makes later about the redemption. Okay, so if certain people are fully human and other people are not fully human, then a certain it sets the stage for certain imperatives. Assad is very, very attentive to the categories that we're using. Uh, How do they create imperatives, both imperatives to safeguard and guarantee what is considered sacred and good, and both imperatives to uh, destroy (laughs) and redeem that which is bad or stands in the way of the good? Right. And so that, that's a textbook example where the Taliban uh, is not considered fully human within the human rights framework. They are people who, for various reasons, offend modern sensibilities. Um, and we're not being uh, moralistic here. We're just being descriptive um, because obviously everybody can be critiqued and everybody has to be critiqued according to you know the Quran, the Sunnah and the Islamic tradition. But just descriptively saying that they, many of the things that they do fly in the face of modernity. And so within the modern frame or the secular frame, they are considered less than fully human, the um, eligible object of redeeming violence. Uh, and 
even the population under whom uh, they are, you know, sort of uh, exactly. who are under their control. Yes, exactly. Are also the objects of that so-called redeeming violence when it comes to uh, either invasion itself or when it comes to sanctions, right? Like what's going on now, the freezing of assets and everything else. Right. So um, th this is, again, just to strike home at the fact that the secular world is not a less violent world. No, it's not. It is just that the violence has shifted. The map has shifted. Who becomes a legitimate target of violence and who is not a legitimate target of violence has shifted. And so the violence is now not being just applied. It's not being applied to the infidel, quote unquote. But uh, who is the infidel has changed. OK, the, the not fully human, the person who is the anti-modern uh, for various reasons, uh, either, you know, uh, actively in the case of the Taliban or, or passively uh, in terms of the population or the populace of Afghanistan, they um, make themselves eligible for redemptive violence, quote unquote, within this schema. Um, so that's that's about pain. And then so we have a, a related thing, a related thing, which is the high value that the, the modern secular self places on uh, bodily integrity. Okay, bodily integrity is something that's particular to the, the, the secular self. Um, this is why female circumcision especially, but also male circumcision, you know, increasingly so, is in the targets or in the crosshairs of sort of the, the secular world order, because it is inconscionable to kind of the secular frame that uh, the body could be uh, depleted in any sort of way, right? We have the, this is part of the knee-jerk uh, visceral reaction of moderns towards things like in the Sharia, such as uh, severing the hand of a burglar, of a convicted burglar. Why is it so so scandalous um, compared to compared to solitary confinement, compared to putting somebody away for decades, mm -hmm. right? The punishment in the United States for somebody who is a convicted burglar, uh, you know, he's a felon. He can't vote anymore ever for his life. You know, uh, he can't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're a felon, uh, all these sorts of things. Punishment is much more permanent um, and and psychological right than bodily within the modern secular frame okay so this is not just about less violence in the secular sphere no we've shifted violence around uh and we've changed who are its uh, its objects so um so this is something that flies you know the circumcision thing flies in the face of uh of this kind of rendering of bodily integrity being paramount and even and that's something that's very physical but even physical experiences right so the the possibility of having quote unquote sexual satisfaction Right is taken as something that is a human right, uh, according to this frame, and the anything that's going to stand in the way of that potential fulfillment of sexual satisfaction now becomes something that develops an imperative within the secular frame to remove and with violence if necessary. So this is where you get into okay, now we invade Afghanistan because of the oppressed Afghan women. Right, this was a big uh, sort of uh, discursive move, especially in 2001 when the United States first inflicted uh, their invasion and their violence upon the people of Af Afghanistan. The Afghan women were all over the news. Yeah, they can't. They can't. And that's not to that's not to say that you know there weren't you know harms and, and terrible things happening. But the fact that that was the sticking point for a lot of people it reveals something about the modern secular frame and their assumptions about who deserves violence and who doesn't, and what are the, the metaphysics, the particularities of what they believe, right? So uh, sexual satisfaction becomes an inalienable right, uh, and somebody who is even um, standing in the way of the full satisfaction of that inalienable right is less than human, right? They're, they're less than fully human, and therefore they deserve to uh, be part of collateral damage or get bombed or removed or anything like this. Um, 
Another sort of aspect of the, the secular modern self that reveals itself as a particularity and not a universal. Um, and why, again, to, to, to stress this again, these are p- particular positions and they're not universal. So at the surface level, the human being sounds like it's a universal. But when we look up, when we look into the, the nooks and crannies of what type of human being we're talking about, who is the fully human here? It's actually something that's very, very specific. It's based on Western norms. It's based off of Western philosophy. And people who are outside of that, people who see, um, you know, dismemberment as a or, or public lashing or these sorts of things as perhaps a superior way of administering justice uh, are now rendered due to the scheme as less fully human. And in need of redemption, of course, whether violent or not. Another aspect of the secular modern uh, self is autonomous uh, individuality. Okay, mm. and the autonomous individual who seeks pleasure and avoids pain. Okay, this is taken as paradigmatic. Um, and this is, you know, the author Esed has a nice footnote where he talks about the experience of Chinese students learning English, and how um, Chinese students have to be taught to use the first person singular. I, 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 because it flies in the face of a lot of Confucian thought and, and societal norms to talk about the self in that way. Um, and they need to be trained to um, respond with um, frankness and with a sort of go get them. And, you know, this, this, this whole sort of uh, ethical sort of web of how, how to relate to yourself, how to relate to your des- desires, how to communicate the things that you want, things that are not universal, right, but are being passed off as universal under the phony category of human. Um, similar to the martyr we talked about previously, like the martyr, the person who uh, seeks death, right? Or the the woman who wants to experience the, the pain of childbirth, or at least maybe if not wants to, then embraces and accepts the pain of childbirth as something that is productive and generative and not something that needs to be run away from and avoided. All of these people are less than fully human uh, within the secular modern frame um, because the secular the, f- the fully human subject in secular modernity is somebody who is an autonomous individual who seeks pleasure and avoids pain whenever possible. Um, and the last point, I guess, for the at least for the moment for the, the secular modern sort of uh, subject is that there is um, the category of human excludes everything that's not human. Hmm. Okay, So that's something that people rarely reflect upon. Okay, They want to establish a category such as human in order to incorporate everybody. But actually, things by definition, categories have to exclude. They're, they're By nature, they're exclusionary. So you just have to look at who's being excluded and who's not and in what way. So if we're going to ex- uh, develop a category such as the human that seems to be all-encompassing when really it's not, it's doubly exclusionary in the sense that it not only excludes humans that aren't fully human within the metaphysical sort of assumptions of what that means, but it also excludes non-human be- non-human persons. Okay, so now we see the violence that is wreaked upon animals. We don't think twice about it. You know, you have a shampoo product you want to test. Okay, get the lab rat. Okay, we want to uh, you know nail polish. Scientists they they use animals just like uh, just like toilet paper. Right, like they're 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 objects just to dispose of. Literally innate, brute, stupid. Even in the in the words of some philosophers about uh, matter, um, and our relationship or the the modern secular relationship towards the environment and towards animals uh, reveals that. Reveals that. I mean, yes. just on a very on a very sentimental level, and not on this uh, intellectual plane at all. But what one can see, and I, I've seen a number of YouTube videos, and they're quite touching. And this is a very sentimental point, <laughs> but where um, you you get a um, 
a, a kindly lady, you know, in the West usually, uh, who, who um, shows some affection to a, a cow or or, or mm. a sheep, and and you can see how the animal responds, and and there is some there's some affection, you know, there's some tenderness uh, there. That there's a there's a kind of subjectivity manifest in this relationship between. It's not just between a human being and a mechanical beast. Uh, which can be used and eaten or or treated badly. That is a sentient being with feelings, and I don't want to anthropomorphize a cow too much, but nevertheless, it does exhibit feelings and can respond to affection with affection. And to see the body language here of, of the of the farmyard a, a animal and the way it responds just to simple kindness, and you can see how it develops this kind of uh, affectionate response. Very touching and very sentimental. But you know the, the legacy of kind of the Cartesian mind-body split where animals are just seen as machines or object to be used is a terrible legacy. The, the, the harm it's inflicted on non-human subjects is incalculable and it's still ongoing, as you say. Yes, and there are certain kind of paradigmatic uh, uh, things that, that exist because they are epistemically permitted to exist that would be unfathomable in a different episteme, such as the factory farm, right? Like uh, the idea of the factory farm where animals are literally packed in like uh, packing peanuts into a box, like a as much as can possibly be fit into a space, you know, living within their own, you know, excrement and and uh, and urine and and you know, hooked up to antibiotics and these sorts of things, you know, constantly being injected to to stave off death and to you know artificially make them a certain size and these sorts of things, right? This is only possible within a certain episteme. This is not, you know, uh, and we'll talk about this more. I think eventually we'll get around to Halak, you know, uh, sort of the next and the logical conclusion after Esed. But, um, you know, uh, this is not just the unfolding of progress. This is not just the unfolding of technology. If you gave uh, Muslims uh, the same, uh, you know, uh, armies and uh, factories and whatever, uh, they wouldn't produce this or the Chinese or Indians or anybody else, right? It's an episteme that makes these sorts of atrocities pop possible. It was was not possible to treat animals this way on a systematic level, right? Uh, until the, the episteme took over that put animals outside of creatures that were deserving any sort of respect, um, even the way that we construct the human identity, right? We're talking about the phony universality of the human category. What's the scientific name of human beings? is homo sapiens, right? Sapiens comes from sapiens, right? Which is supposed to be intellect and things like that. That's a metaphysical assumption. That's a medical, a metaphysical assumption that human beings are distinct from other creatures due to their intelligence. Since that naming has taken place, we've learned a lot about how animals are actually extremely intelligent. And perhaps there are animals such as octopuses and dolphins and things like that, that are maybe even more intelligent than human beings. Um, as opposed to uh, a more indigenously Islamic model, which would define humans not by their intelligence per se, but by their moral capacity, right? That's that's so we see how these things that pretend to be neutral and universal at the end of the day, they're actually simply Western norms that have a particular metaphysics and a bad one at that one that's phony and one that's not rooted in, in divine uh, uh, guidance. Um, and this will come to bear. This will come to bear if we compare against, uh, again, the um, sort of the anthropocentric Western model of what is a human against the Khilafah model, which is the Islamic model. Human being, we, or we don't need to necessarily expand the gap, the category of human in order to treat other people well. 
Um, or could, could you just use you, you get those two uh, juxtapositions? Yeah, the, the anthropocentric yes. Western understanding, which is a yes. to put that in plainer language, it says a man-centered worldview as opposed yes. to God-centered worldview. And yes. then, you, then you contrasted that with the, uh, the, the 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 Khalifa role, which of course the Quran speaks about uh, on on a num- in a number of passages. And we're not talking about here about a system of governments uh, so, so much like we see in the the later caliphate. We're talking mm-hmm. about what? Well, what 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 is what is the Quran? Very briefly, what, what is the Quran? We're talking about the individual teleology. So we're talking about the purpose of human life. Okay, The the purpose of human life is not simply to subsist for your individual self. And Mm. it's not also simply just to worship, though that's part of it. But it is to steward. It is to safeguard. It is to manage. It is to care for. Right. And so for the kind of Islamic paradigm of what a human being is supposed to be, or what even better than that, a believer is supposed to be. The believer is supposed to climb these these rungs on the ladder and climb these ranks and get to the point where they're not merely living for themselves. They're enriching and uplifting everything around them, the whole creation, right? right. Um, and so this is kind of the, again, the teleology, the purpose of what a human being or specifically a believer is supposed to be geared towards. Fundamentally different way of relating towards the creation than the idea of, yes, the uh, Descartes, you know, mind-body split, and then we have human beings, uh, human exceptionalism, and everything else is just brute matter, and all these sorts of things. And these differences create real uh, results when it comes to the outcomes for how people are relating to the environment, and in this case, destroying it. But they also, and this is one of Essed's kind of interesting points, one of these tangents that he goes off of, Mm -hmm. is how it's going to position us for the future. So he talks about robots. Okay, how are we going to be able to deal with robots once AI reaches a certain uh, level where now these things maybe perhaps have some sort of consciousness and maybe even commit crimes and these sorts of things? The 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 Western secular modern sort of paradigm of human being um, is not going to put us in a very, very empowered place to deal with those sorts of things. Whereas the the AI robot would be considered more like an animal or a machine. Whereas the Khilafa model puts us actually in a very, very reasonable and empowered position to be able to deal with these things because the responsibility still remains the same and the outcomes and the ethical sort of imperatives that are tied up with what it means to be a believer. Once we've got that <laughs> under our belts, and that, that was heavy. He talked he, so that's the human. That covers the human. Okay. The, the first part of human rights. And the second is rights. Okay, so now we have to talk about rights. What are rights? Where do they come from? Okay, and Esad is particularly concerned or wants to draw our attention to how did the human subject become constituted by inalienable rights? Right? Why, why do we assume that there is such a thing such as rights mm-hmm. and that the human being is basically um, inseparable from these rights, literally inalienable? You can't take them away. So um, he takes us through the process a little bit. He takes us back to Latin Christendom and Roman law and how kind of ideas of natural rights sort of emerge from there. But he also talks about how the idea of natural rights that are simply naturally occurring, uh, two significant things. One of them is that they're predicated upon identifying the natural state, right? So we now have sort of an origins question where we're required, the imperative that it creates is that we have to go backwards and see, well, what's the natural state of human being? And from that, derive our rights. And then, of course, construct some sort of governance system that's going to uh, safeguard those rights. And so you see people who have different accounts of what is that natural state. And again, as we said in the very beginning, 
completely differing conceptions of what is that natural state and thus what type of governance structures are required to safeguard those rights. But the second thing, and this is probably more important for our uh, purposes, is that all of these conceptions are rooted in just human experience. They do not presuppose God. They do not have anything to do with our relationship with the divine. It is all limited to the world. Yeah. Um, and there's some interesting kind of side points he makes along the way. He talks about Hobbes and Hobbes sort of being very central to developing a type of secular modern morality where he kind of merged uh, supernatural punishment with natural punishment. So he made that all punishment was natural and deserved, right? So if you drink to excess, then you're going to have natural consequences to you. And if you uh, eat a poor diet or don't exercise, then there's going to be this you know, consequence and that consequence. So we see that this actually produces a certain type of morality in which um, whatever is simply found in nature and doesn't seem to have any negative consequences, then that is moral. Yeah. Right. And but that should have. So, just to clarify for everyone that Thomas Hobbes was a, an Englishman, actually, I think from the 17th century. Uh, he's the author of the very famous book, still read today, called Leviathan. Um, it, it's, uh, it's still a very important work of political philosophy. Uh, he's, he's often thought of, 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 of as an atheist, but he's also credited with the famous um, statement that man in his natural state, his life is nasty, brutish, and short. And that's what, um, and that's what he led on to his, of course, uh, his answer to that in in the book, which I won't go into. So I didn't try. I was wondering. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Hobbes on the map here is a 17th century English political philosopher, still read today. Mm. Uh, important to get to know if you understand the Western tradition and what's um, and why uh, these ideas are still prevalent in the world today. And that quote is really important to talking about again assumptions about the human. What's what's the the usul in Arabic? What's the the na the natural state? From which then supposedly we divide, divide, excuse me, derive our rights and then construct our governance structures. Um, but before that, so yes, yeah, so uh, Hobbes makes a morality like this is a moral system, um, and the moral system is simply reduced to prudential calculation. Okay, if something harms, then it's bad. Mm. If something produces pleasure, then it's good. Okay, and yeah. we see how now this has played out. <laughs> you know, uh, three centuries later, where now we're trying to you know, arbitrate between all these sorts of things about relationships and sexuality and gender and stuff like that. Hobbes has set us up to where we've gone, exactly. where now uh, the morality, the moral thing is what brings you pleasure. And the immoral thing is what brings you pain. And even going on to, to John Locke, well, I don't know if you want to give a little Introduction to John Locke. Okay, John Locke was uh, another 17th century Englishman. He's uh, much more popular in the United States than he is in England. Um, he's a, a philosopher, um, incredibly important philosopher. But um, his influence on American political theory leading up to the Constitution of the United States is very, very great. Um, but uh, there's a great picture of him with enormous wig because they like Newton, who's a contemporary of his, he's one of these massive wigs uh, at the time. But um, the, 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 he made a very important technical contribution to uh, to philosophy in terms of our sense perception, which I'm not going to go into. But he, he's, he's much more significant, I think, for American political theory mm -hmm. than he is perceived to be in England, where he seems more of a narrow philosopher. But anyway, 17th century again. Yes. Yeah, so Locke, you know, responding to Hobbes tries to reintroduce the divine, right? He tries to say, well, it's not just natural consequences. Like, well, maybe it's sort of natural consequences, but it's really the divine power mm. that is bringing about those consequences. However, Locke doesn't criticize. He leaves intact the whole moral 
universe. Whereas what is good is what brings you pleasure and what is evil is what brings you pain. And so now we have a further entrenchment of this sort of, of this sort of thing. So that shapes our ideas of, you know, what we have rights to, which rights are inalienable, inalienable, which ones can be separated from us Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, if we're looking to the the natural society, we follow it back enough. Okay, we want to figure out what are our true natural rights. What are the rights that are completely inseparable, essential for human beings, and which kind of did we accumulate later down the road? Um, Hobbes, as you said, you know, had this kind of conception of war of all against all. Right, life is nasty and, and brutish and short, and everybody's just out to get each other. And in, in its natural state, that is yes. not, not in the, the society he wished to see uh, develop. But in, yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, we're getting rights from this supposed state of nature. Okay, what is the true state of nature of man? And that's going to reveal to us uh, the inalienable rights, like the real rights, the real actual natural rights that you can't get away from, the human essence. And then we can talk about constructing sort of a, a form of governance that's going to protect those rights. And so Hobbes was instrumental because he um, conceived of the state of nature of man as a war of all against all. Mm. Um, just like you said, nasty, brutish and short. And then the only possible way to safeguard your rights is to delegate them to the state. Right. So that's kind of, you see the, now we've gone from human to rights to governance. Right. And so this particular conception of the human and this particular conception of rights now dictates what type of governance structure we need to employ in order to safeguard those rights. But still, whether it's Hobbes or, or Locke or any of the other sort of voices in the game um it's always assuming a secular state of affairs it's mm. assuming a, 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 a the natural that they're searching for has nothing to do with god uh or just very lip service like nothing actually substantially god is not a necessary part of it is not presupposed um presupposed oh, oh, it, interesting it. just a little footnote here about john locke who, who, who cited um the, the english uh, philosopher and political theorist um he, he in, in his published writings argued against giving atheists uh, any political rights uh, because they were seen as entirely dangerous and threatening. Why? Well, atheists don't believe in a thing. They don't believe in morality, objective morality. How can you give such people rights? So the, the, the irony is that this great uh, uh, th- uh, um, political theorist and philosopher, huge influential in the American Constitution, uh, argued against giving atheists their political rights because they're dangerous. They're subversive. So there right. you go. No, it's fascinating. I mean, he, he, in a sense, understood the relationship between morality and law, right? Is that you can't separate one from the other. If you have somebody that doesn't believe in moral absolutes, then how are they going to be responsible legal citizens? Um, it, it's much more of a tenuous sort of thing. Uh, however, his blind spot was, yeah, his construction of morality and trying to naturalize it um, in just in taking out the divine guidance part of the equation and just naturalizing everything and saying, well, it's, ple- it's about pleasure and pain and, and yeah. reward and punish. Um, so once we've got to the exchange of rights, okay, so we have this, this type of human being that has a certain type of rights or a certain set of inalienable rights, and they delegate them to a certain type of governance, in this case, the state. What type of human being is this for review? It's somebody who is sovereign, right? Someone who is individual, someone who is a self owning agent, right? Mm. That gives us the, the right of free speech and the right of, uh, of belief. Um, someone who's suspicious of others. Okay. That's also uh, a holdover from Hobbes. And the category of human is both homogenous in the sense that all human beings, at least the abstract human being is theoretically similar to everybody else, right? So we have legal um, singularity as opposed to legal pluralism. 
right? We're going to have one law that's going to apply to everybody as opposed to multiple laws that are going to apply to different communities, depending on their faith or whatever. And it's so it's homogenous, but it's also exclusive. And mm-hmm. that means that uh, no animals, no environment, no mm-hmm. trees, no sun, right? We're just talking about these are the only uh, eligible creatures for rights. And even to call it creatures is my doing, not their doing, right? Like, like they're the only eligible entities that could possibly have rights or at least natural rights. Um, so when we get to delegating to the state specifically, this responsibility of safeguarding our sovereignty or safeguarding these natural rights, this is a move that is extremely, extremely significant for us. And Essa uh, talks a lot about it because the language of human rights today is globalist and international in scope, Right. You find the liberals and maybe the Labour Party, I don't know, uh, in in the UK, they're interested in Amnesty International and they're concerned about what's going on in China and they're concerned about certain things at a global sphere. They're not um, nativists. The the, the United Nations, which was formed obviously just after the Second World War, uh, uh, what was defined very much, I think, in terms of Western conceptions of rights and morality rather than, say, a Chinese understanding or a Muslim understanding or or any other kind of Christian understanding. So uh, the United Nations, which is obviously based where? In New York, which happens to be America, the world superpower. Um, You know, that's no accident, I think, that the headquarters is based there as well. Yes, of course. And ironically, you know, just as a, as a side point, you know, much more of the world supports an economic uh, declaration of human rights. And I re- recall the United States vetoing it at several points, um, because obviously it would have certain uh, implications for how the United States should be sh- should be set up. Um, but that's sort of a tangential point. The, mm. the important point that Esad wants us to realize is that who did we give our rights over to, or who did we empower or delegate, theoretically, in order to pr- protect these rights? It's the state. It's not the UN. It's not any international body. And so human rights are always dependent upon national rights, civil rights. Mm -hmm. And if you ever find a conflict between the two, the civil rights are going to win every single time. Mm -hmm. And we see this play out. So he talks about, for example, Malcolm X uh, versus MLK. And we'll talk about MLK Jr. in a second. But Malcolm X attempted to um, provide or to construct a platform based off of human rights. And the logic was appealing. He said, okay, we're, we're, we're black people. Uh, we're in the United States. If we're only considering civil rights, then we're always going to be a minority. And we're always going to have to appeal to the majority's goodwill in mm. order to do us right. However, if we blow up the scale a little bit and we look at a zoom out and we look at the whole world, we're actually a majority. Like we have Africa behind us. We have Asia behind us. We have the colonized world behind us. And actually the people who aren't giving us our due rights or the people who are oppressing us or treating us unfairly, they are a very, very, very small minority. So the logic was, if we're able to zoom it out and appeal to human rights, then we're more likely to get our rights uh, than going through the kind of civil rights. However, the miscalculation was that civil rights always take priority and the state, the nation state, is the one who holds the keys in order to apply, identify violations of human rights and enforce them on whoever they want. And that's why the platform of Malcolm X was not successful, ultimately, uh, or one of the main reasons, because it neglected this aspect of state power, uh, which is imminent in a way that international bodies don't really have any teeth. And that's well known. even if you, as it actually goes through a little bit of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and after kind of, you know, um, it very quickly goes and recognizes that it depends upon the state to enforce these rights. That And so that has set up a situation where the states apply 
and don't apply according to their interests, right? They'll, they'll apply human rights when it's in the interest of them, uh, and they will disregard them whenever it uh, sees fit. And we see that again with Guantanamo Bay and with the black sites and with all these sorts of things. Um, when it's somebody that the United States wants to criticize or justify a regime change or justify an invasion or justify violence, redemptive violence, supposedly, then it's about human rights. However, has anybody been successfully able to hold the United States accountable for human rights violations, take them to an international court of law, you know, freeze the assets of George Bush and Tony Blair and these folks and, yeah. you know, um, make them pay for anything that they've done? Of course not. Of but, course there's, not. But, but there's a reason for that. I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The United States yes. has always refused to sign up to uh, the, these tre- these international treaties that hold yes. nations to account in human rights yes. because of the sense of American exceptionalism and the idea... Yes. We, we can't have these uh, international bodies or other entities holding America to account because it's exceptional. It's the it's the great nation on Earth. So America actually refused to be held to account for the International Criminal Court, for example. It is yes. actually not a signatory. It will not be held to account. But it expects other nations to be held to account yes. uh, for precisely the same jurisdiction. So the irony yes. is, you know, do, do as we say, not as we do, I yes. think might be the motto of the State Department. Of course, no, there's the, the there's the surface level of hypocrisy that the United States always plays, but there's the deeper level of why does the ICC have to ask permission in the first place? If the ICC truly had sovereignty, it would not ask permission. It would simply impose the law, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's to show us the ground. And it starts again back with Hobbes where we're, we're consigning or delegating our rights or the preservation of our rights to the state, to a nation state particularly, not any sort of other sort of... Uh, body. And this comes up in a lot of different sort of other scenarios, some that we can think of, some that that Esad points to, the whole thing with the WikiLeaks and you have uh, Snowden and uh, Assange, right? You have, yeah, he's going to get extradited. Why? What takes priority? Mm. Like in this this situation, we have human rights going against state rights and state rights is always going to win because human rights and human rights institutions depend upon the nation state as a uh, as as an institution as a uh, a body in order to uh, to apply and inflict and and, and, and Assange is is, is is crime is to expose war crimes uh, committed yeah. by the united states in killing civilians and because he did that he's now been hunted down uh, successfully it was seen by america the cia apparently came out in the news recently were considering assassinating him uh, as as well as just uh, t- taking him out and and so he's on a, he's in a, in a london prison at the moment uh, um being extra it's a terrible you see the, the way that other people treat free speech is very important we must defend the right to speak truth to power except when it goes against our geopolitical interests um yes. in that case they are incarcerated or even taken yes. out so, yes, fantastic. And that's a lovely segue. Just one one more situation just for the, the listeners. And then that's a lovely segue to uh, who holds the keys and, and why that's significant. Yeah. So uh, Esed brings up this situation where uh, the Greek nation, you know, Greece was trying to get admittance into the EU and they had on their identity cards, their religion. Religion was stated on their identity cards, their national identity cards. And this is something that was contradicting EU legislation or EU law. Like you had, you you were not allowed in order to gain admittance into the EU, you were not allowed to identify uh, your religion on an ID card, right? Mm. And there's an assumption behind that. The assumption behind that is that it's done for, you know, um, well, it's a legal sort of, uh, it, it, there's an assumption against legal plurality that you have to have one law for everybody. And there's an assumption that if you distinguish yourself as uh, somebody who's from a different religion that you're going to become a second class citizen, you're going to be treated with discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. However, 
you had people in Greece that wanted it to stay. And they were trying to complain, you know, that the EU was trying to force them to uh, to let go of their religious rights or their, their, their freedom of belief, their freedom to express their own religious belief. And the irony is, the irony is the Greek state then stepped in because the Greek, Greek state wanted to be part of the EU. They wanted to, re- they decided unilaterally to remove uh, the category of religion from Greek identification cards. But the justification that they had for doing it is what's really telling. They they justified it by saying that this is not a threat to the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? So they did it with a religious justification. The state is the one that gets to decide what is threatening and what is not threatening to the Orthodox Church, not the Orthodox Church. So all these sort of situations, this is all shining the light on who holds the keys, who gets to decide who gets to decide who is fully human and who's not fully human, who has the power to identify what is fully good and what is fully evil? Who is given the power to identify the obstacles that stand in the way of being fully human, right? And thus create the imperative to remove them uh, and to restore the fully humanness? It is the secular state. Mm-hmm. So the secular state is the one that gets to decide who is fully human and who is not, and who is the legitimate uh, object of violence and who is the legitimate subject of of redemption and to the night the to the end of it. Um, okay, let's see here. The next section, uh, Essa talks about minorities and assimilation. This is kind of, uh, you know, getting back to formations of the secular. So I'm going to go through this briefly because I, they're they're sort of tangential, I think, to a lot of else of what he's saying. And the points that he hits towards the end of the section are really much more crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talks about the idea of assimilating. And this is significant to Muslim, quote unquote, minorities, both in North America and in Europe. Right. So the idea is that uh, there's this theme of the Muslim, the recalcitrant Muslim, who's very difficult to assimilate. Okay. And so Esad's going to deconstruct and, and question this whole um, this whole thing. Why is it assumed that what's the kind of, I guess, intellectual playing field upon which Muslims are plotted as being difficult to assimilate? He's saying it's not any fault of the Muslims. He's saying it's the fault of how you understand Europe and what Europe is. Okay. So what's happened is that we've given Europe an essential character, or again, take America or anything else. You've given it an essential character and Muslims are being read as contradicting that essential character. Okay. And therefore um, they are expected to assimilate. And if they don't just produce, just shed everything that makes them them, everything, their historical experience, their religion, all these sorts of things, except for what the state deems appropriate. And then mimics and imitates the Western norms and the Western values and everything that's assumed to be the essential character, whether it's of Europe or America or something else, then that is when they are able to finally be granted recognition, uh, maybe, uh, for being truly European, right? And so S is drawing our attention to the uneven playing field and again, who holds the keys to power, who is assumed as having an essential character and who is asked to give up their essential character in order to fit in with a different sort of uh, system. And he talks about this is very on display with, you know, admission to the EU. You have Bosnia and Turkey who are very much part of Europe geographically. But because of this um, understanding of the of Europe as not just a geographical location, but as a civilization and the kind of curation that has happened to cut them out of the shared experience of what it means to be European, then they are seen as outsiders, even if they have existed in Europe this whole time.
the last, I guess, significant point I think that he makes uh, when it comes to, we see, by the way, the same thing with Native Americans in, in, in North America, not just with Muslims, but also with Native Americans. They're excluded from the idea of Americanness that we have. Who is the, and this is something that actually, you know, uh, even African Americans are excluded from the, the normal idea of what an American is. And to, to, to show how much purchase this has, you can go abroad. Okay, when we were in Medina, when we were in Saudi Arabia, and people would ask, like, where are you from? And if you were African American, you would say, well, I'm from, I'm from America. And they'd say, wait a second, but you're black. Right? That's actually, and they would have the, they, they wouldn't have enough social etiquette to realize that they shouldn't be saying those sorts of things. That doesn't just reveal prejudice on their part, but it also reveals something about the essential character of being an American that is not just indigenous to the, to the home front, and domestically, but actually exported abroad, whether it's in movies or books or anything else, is that even people who are outside the United States understand that to be American, there's a certain normal expectation or an essential character of what that is. And if you don't adhere to that, then you are supposed to shed whatever it is that makes you uh, particular in order to fit the mold. He talks about, you know, one of the different things, a lot of this comes back to, again, legal pluralism versus legal uh, singularity. Okay. And, and he talks about the modern state as being very simplistic when it comes both to the, the unity of its law, assuming that everybody has to be governed by, governed by exactly the same laws, but also in how it reckons space and time. Okay. Because the nation as something to kind of, you're making the myth of the nation, uh, the United States, you know, 1776 and 1492 with Columbus and all the sort of benchmarks that you learn in school as to the formative periods of American history and the big events and what kind of makes the American experience. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, England has its own, right? It's, it's, it's very limited. It's very simple and it's very linear when you compare it to pre-modern Islam and even Christianity, other sort of faith traditions or communities, you find things that are much more complex, much more complex renderings of space and much more complex renderings of time, right? The Ummah, is a very complex rendering of space. It's not something that can be constricted to uh, one geography or even to a nation state. The ummah is something that is uh, ubiquitous. It goes everywhere. Wherever there's a Muslim, there's the ummah. Um, the calendars that we have, right? And how we relate to the future and the past, right? We have not just as believers, do we relate to a different past? We, our heroes aren't, uh, at least in Muslims in America, our heroes aren't George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, right? They are, uh, you know, the Prophet Muhammad alayhi salatu salam and his companions. So we have a different sense of past. We have a different sense of future, right? We, we care about Jannah. We care about getting to paradise, all these sorts of things. Um, and we're experiencing time right now in a different sort of way with the Islamic calendar, with the Eids and the different sort of the full moons, the fasting cycles, all these sorts of things. So he wants, he touches on that briefly. And he says that basically the secular modern uh, rendering of time and space is, is, and law is, is very constricting and very limited. Um, whereas that of pre-modern societies and form and formations are much more complex. And th this is just in, in brief is a, a point that I, I make much of the incredulity of non-Muslims I've spoken to about this. That I, I say that under the Sharia, an Islamic system of governance, uh, admittedly a, an ideal uh, conception here, there's much more f uh, pluralism and freedom, actually. Yes. Uh, and one has seen this in history, say in the Ottoman Empire and other examples of Muslim rulership than the West. And how can this be? How can this be? What do you mean? Well, the example you give, this idea of le legal plur plurality is, is key here, that um, there isn't just one size fits all legal system for absolutely everything, mm -hmm. everyone, regardless of their of their faith and, and their lives and their lived lives. Uh, in, in the Islamic system, Christians can 
uh, eat pork and drink, you know, worship and and, and marry and, and inheritance laws according to their um, the rules and regulations, as can Jews, obviously, um, and, and Muslims too. There is an insistence that uh, in Islamic system that Christians abide by um, uh, Islamic uh, laws when it comes to these personal areas. Ditto for the Jews and so on. So there's this legal pluralism in the Islamic mm-hmm. context, which do- doesn't exist in the West at all. Obviously, in France, everyone has this rigid straitjacket of a laicite, which Mus- and Muslims as uh, as people who practice faith in, in a holistic sense is simply not recognized. In other mm-hmm. words, it's denied because it's not recognized and enhanced and, and related to. So uh, actually, the Islamic system is much more pluralistic and to that extent more free than the Western model ever has been, I would argue. Yes. No, the, the nation state model is extremely assimilationist, yeah. whereas the Sharia model is not assimilationist in nature. You could say incentivized. Yes, there are incentives to become a Muslim and to accept the faith, but not nearly to the degree uh, where the pressure and to go the Foucault route, you know, the governmentality and the discursive power um, or the disciplinary power, rather, of mm-hmm. uh, pushing people to assimilate, pushing people to assimilate all the time mm-hmm. you know, from moment to moment. Um, so that brings us to the last chapter of this section, yeah. and it's it's a good one. For those of you who are um, kind of were like, what is he talking about? I thought we were going to talk about secularism. What's all this philosophy? The last chapter of, the se- of this section of the book, the second section, gets into maybe what you would m- more expect um, to talk about nations, nation states, and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, he poses a question to begin the chapter. He says, is secularization essential to modernity? Um, and he identifies three things that are uh, essential or pillars. And he takes someone else's writing here, but he agrees. He says, first of all, what is modernity? Modernity is is acknowledged by or differentiated by one structural differentiation of social spaces. Structural differentiation of social spaces. That's what how we can imagine religion and politics separate. That's how we can imagine science and humanities as separate. Right, because we have structural differentiation, or at least uh, quantitatively more of it. Two, we have the privatization of religion. Okay, you're not going this part of with the legal pluralism or legal singularism thing. You're not going to be kind of treated differently according to your religion. No, you keep your religion to your home and your mosque, and when you come to the social space, you are a citizen. Right, and uh, and so that's the kind of identity that you're you're working through. And then three, finally declining social significance of religious belief, conviction, and institutions. Okay, so, and this takes place in in different sort of ways when we're talking about actually history and nation to nation. Like the US is different from the UK, very different from France. But in general, modernity and secular modernity is marked by declining social significance of religious belief, conviction, and institutions. So as said, he goes through a couple of different thinkers and he basically says, yes, like, like, to answer the question, yes, secularism is essential to modernity. Um, and he's going to basically try to prove why within this within this chapter. One of the things he says is because secularism controls how religions become public, even if they were to become public, and how they are rendered private, and what kinds of religions are allowed to enter the social space. Okay, so... Uh, Short answer, yes. Like There is no separating secularism from modernity, um, which is, again, based off of a different sense of modernity than just what's new or the current time period that we exist in. We're talking about the relationship between different structures of governance and philosophical ideas and how these play out. Okay. So he says, only religions in the secular modern sphere and paradigm and era that we live in, only religions that have accepted 
assumptions of liberal discourse, where tolerance is sought within a distinction between law and morality, only those religions are allowed to enter the public sphere. Right. So some other sorts of uh, you could say, well, what are the other sorts of available uh, assumptions that there are or what discourses are there? Um, the separation of law and morality is key. Right. And so uh, this is something that Halak is going to get into much more with the impossible state and restating Orientalism. But mm -hmm. the idea that the idea that law and morality could be separate, the idea that um, I'm going to leave my Islam at the door. Right. And I'm going to converse with you just as a human being. And we talked about how complicated that actually is, or just as a citizen and talk about, you know, within these sorts of systems of natural rights and try to convince you and persuade you and things like this. Right. So only religions that are willing to do that work are going to be actually given legitimacy in the public sphere or in the uh, public and, and sphere. And those religions that are not will be actively uh, uh, reformed, in inverted commas, by state agencies. We see this very explicitly in France, uh, yes. where, where, the, where the state uh, appoints its own approved imams. And uh, if, if you uh, step out of line, then not only will you be silenced, you can be deported from the country. There are several imams this year. I mean, I, I was reading a news article about it that have been literally kicked out of the country for daring to preach from the Quran and the Sunnah without going through a liberal a liberal controlling filter first to ensure that the, the Quran conforms to this ideology, this laicite ideology yes. of secularism. So um, it, it's not just that only those permitted to enter that are uh, conformable values. Religions that aren't like that will be made to conform yeah. um, by force and by, by punishment if you don't. So it, it's a mm -hmm. very uh, muscular um, attempt to change faith. So secularism isn't uh, the lesson for me, takeaway. Secularism is not neutral. It's absolutely not neutral. It's, it's tightly wedded to a liberal uh, mm -hmm. social order uh, with all that means philosophically in terms of uh, the worldviews and so on. Yes. And that's also partly because the public space is not neutral, right? We talk about, and we we have a myth of the public space as being this neutral, open marketplace, freehand, you know, laissez-faire sort of thing where anybody can come and establish uh, the their own case for whatever they want using public reason and convince each other. And then the best one's going to win. As it says, it's a myth. It doesn't exist. Why? First of all, because there are... Uh, there's obvious power at play when it comes to things that you can't say, right? Um, whether it's considered hate speech or whether it's, you know, uh, libel or slander or defamation, things like that. That's something most people understand. But there's also another level of power that's going on. And that in order to meaningfully express free mm. speech, you need to be heard. This is a very subtle point that um, that, he, that Assad makes, which I've not actually ever considered before. So when I read this, I thought, how insightful. <laughs> so you're, no, you're, same here. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. You yeah. have to not just be able to speak anything, but you have to be heard. OK, yeah. now what is going to contribute to your ability to be heard? Are there going to be limitations to your ability to ability to be heard. Yes, there are within that public space, right? One of the limits to free speech, as it says, is not just the defamation, etc., but the time and the space that it takes to build and demonstrate a certain argument or to understand our particular experience. There's a famous quote from one of the characters in uh, Orhan Pamuk, one of the you know, Nobel Prize uh, winning authors from Turkey has a, a, a novel called Snow, and there are some very religious characters in it. And at one point, they say to the the secular liberal sort of uh, narrator, they say, "No one could understand us." They said, "Don't write about us in your book. You're going to write a book. Don't put us in it, because no one could understand us from so far away." Hmm. 
right? And the point there being that there's a certain time and space that's required to understand. And you might have been, um, let's just say, indoctrinated by certain experiences through school, through state institutions, through television, national media, corporations that make it harder for you to hear other arguments or harder for you to understand other experiences. And you're not going to stay in the public space forever. You're going to be there in a limited amount of time. So, and we see this at an amplified level on social media, especially the, especially the ones that are like TikTok and, and Twitter, the ones that have very limited character, uh, character requirements. Why? Because why does it become an echo chamber? Why does it become a silo? Why is it go to the point where you're only listening to people who already agree with you because it takes a certain amount of time and space in order to truly understand someone with a very different experience. And that, uh, you know, uh, Twitter's actually a beauty, you know, I wish Twitter was around during Essence writing this because I think he would find it a very instructive kind of microcosm of what he's trying to, 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 to point to here. The social space, the public sphere, the public square is just like Twitter. It's just like Twitter. You're not going to have the time and ability to actually make other people understand certain things due to their programming, due to their experiences, due to the state's, you know, sort of uh, agenda and how they've shaped people. Right. Um, so he says, you know, like religious discourse at times actually has to disrupt people's uh, moral universe in order to be heard in the first place mm -hmm. right like so there's all these people in the public square they have a, a, a roughly if they're part of the essential characterization of the state they have a certain moral universe that they that they exist within and everything that they see is constantly giving them positive feedback to further entrench that moral universe they can't hear you and so sometimes there has to be a discursive discursive disruption right in order to dislocate that moral universe and enable somebody to hear you uh, in the first place, which I thought was a really interesting point when it comes to how we make dawah and how we talk to other people. And, and it actually makes me think of the Quran and how Allah Azza wa especially in the Meccan verses, had different things, uh, whether they were the huruf al-muqata'a, the, uh, the disjointed letters at the beginning of some of the surahs, or some of the, um, you know, the thing, al-qari'a, mal-qari'a, right? And he says things that are kind of arresting, right? They're meant to disrupt. They're meant to kind of dislocate the listener from their previous uh, sort of moral world and shake them up and get them into a place where they can actually hear and process the message. So he deals with a couple of, uh, of other themes and we're going to get to the end here very soon. I promise inshallah, but he talks about the, the, the imagination that religion is intruding or invading, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something we hear a lot talked about and, yes. you know, people who are secularists, they say, well, religion should not intrude. Uh, upon politics or intrude upon the public space or the public sphere, things like that, or invade it, um, mm -hmm. whether it's politics, society, and the public. So three points just to demonstrate what we're talking about, how secularism is not neutral. So that that idea that religion can invade or intrude, first of all, it assumes a secular self as a base level upon which religion is chosen or not chosen or is is it's excuse me, it is dispensable. It's contingent. It's not absolute. Okay. The religion, the, 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 secular self is the real self. The religion is added on top, like sprinkles on an ice cream cone. Right. And it's not essential. And so this is what can allow us to imagine that religion would intrude, encroach, invade on something because we don't consider it part of the essential self in the first place. That's one. Two, it assumes a universal social space, which is called society upon which religion can be plotted and mapped and exists. Right. People did not imagine such a thing as society. 
This is an anachronism. We talk about how was society in 7th century Mecca. There was no such thing as society. There was the ummah. There was the khalq, the creation. There were all these different other categories through which people not just thought of, but experienced reality. And then society is a category of secularism. Yeah. The social is a category produced by secularism yeah. that has metaphysics behind it that say that that is what is real. And everything else, religious experience, religious institutions, religious beliefs, is something that is not real, that is essentially false consciousness, that is plotted upon that map, the, the real map of social, of societal, etc., etc. Mm. And then finally, to imagine that religion could intrude or invade defines religion as beliefs, rituals, symbols, and not truth. Yeah. So, what, what am I most, if I may express a, a complete prejudice here, which is probably uh, totally morally unacceptable? But what, one of my the, the most hated subjects is religious studies, um, as taught, say, in the British uh, British context. Anyway, religious studies. So, religion is an object of study. So, you think, great, yes. we're looking at metaphysics, theology, truth. No. Wow. And you History, look at religious studies. That's what it's called. Yes. Oh, it's the rites and rituals of being mm -hmm. a Muslim. And uh, what do they do? And when are their holidays? Uh, oh, they're on this date. And yes. yeah, it's completely bleached out of any content. And it becomes yes. kind of a sociological descriptive exercise. Yes. But, but of course, religion isn't about that. It's about worshipping God. It's about, uh, you know, who we are in relation to our creator. And, you know, so for me, religious studies is the very opposite of what um, religion should be about and how it should be spoken of. And that's why I hate it. But that's yes. just me being very horrible. No, fantastic point. Fantastic point. The whole, the whole, all the metaphysical premises that go behind the construction of religious studies as a field uh, are completely materialistic and secular. Yeah. Right. So it, it's it's a definition of religion by default as not true, yeah. by default as false consciousness yeah. to imagine that all religions have these things that are common to all of them, such as symbols and and ritual and, you know, taboos and things like that. That is saying that they're not true. Right. And that is not that is a secular rendering. So there's yeah. the power of the secular. Yeah. Again, wielding yeah. you can't yeah. talk about truth. You no. can't talk about uh, the divine right? These sorts of things. So all of those sorts of things uh, demonstrate the power of secular, of the secular and secularism and how it actually, again, shapes the concepts through which we think and feel and understand everything that's happening. Um, two side points that he makes, but I think they're interesting. He asked the question, is nationalism the new religion, right? This is something that we hear a lot about. It's like, oh, well, religion is gone, but now the new religion is nationalism. And Esad is very skeptical of those sorts of claims. And he says, why? Because this assumes that secular definition of religion that we just said. To, to understand nationalism as religion assumes that religion is really symbols, taboos, rituals, worship, uh, these sorts of things. Whereas to a religionist, somebody who is a believer, yeah. religion is not religion as such, but it's the truth. Truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Right, and so to imagine that the nation is, is is something like a religion, it already presumes this definition and a secular one of what religious truth is. Uh, and then he asks the question: Is Islamism simply nationalism? So the idea to um, sort of the Islamic political movements that have gone through the Middle East, North Africa, right, uh, in order to try to get some sort of hybrid between uh, nation state that draws on Islam and, and normative Islamic culture and law. Is it simply just nationalism? And Assad also says no. 
It's not simply nationalism because there are different metaphysics behind it. For the Islamist, uh, the prophet Muhammad sallam, is a prophet first and foremost. Mm. Okay, that he is the 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 vessel of divine truth and revelation. Whereas for a nationalist, like an Arab nationalist, for example, he talks about Arab nationalism. The prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is simply a statesman, mm. right? a statesman to be to be followed and implemented. Um, for the Islamist, a uh, the 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 repository of of truth is the hadith. Whereas for the nationalist, it's history, right? And there are different, what's, what's the difference between hadith and history? Metaphysical assumptions, right? The, the hadith are for the believers and history is for the disbelievers, right? If you look at the, and th you'll find this if you go into Islamic studies and somebody like, um, you know, uh, the people you referenced before would, would be well aware of this who are in the field, that the, the privilege that is given to history over hadith mm. within Islamic studies. Whereas to Muslims, History as a genre is very tangential mm. and peripheral compared to hadith, right? We would be much more, uh, and, and rigorous. Hadith is consider considered much more rigorous of a genre than the history, the, you know, the actual history genre within Islamic scholarship. Um, for the Islamist, there is the ummah. And for the nationalist, there is the nation. What's the difference? The difference is that the ummah does not hold sovereignty. Sovereignty belongs to Allah. Whereas for the nationalists, the, na the nation has sovereignty, and they delegate that sovereignty to the state. To the Islamist, uh, the project is universal in scope. We want everyone to become a Muslim. That's not a secret. We would love it. We're not going to force anybody, but we would love, yeah, sure, that everybody become a Muslim, accept Islam from their own free will. Whereas for the nationalist, um, it's mostly regional. It's about their people. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to have excursions of domination or resource acquisition outside their boundaries. But it's all about, at the end of the day, whatever their imagined community is. So, in sum, so uh, uh, this is kind of the the summing up the a couple of broad uh, genealogies. So at, at the end, he kind of gives this genealogy, which is what a lot of people I think wanted him to just put in the beginning of the book, right? <laughs> Where does secularism come from? Okay, he says secularism. If you follow the concept throughout history, you know, we're doing a genealogy of this idea of secularism. It began actually as a legal term for the transition of a of a monk from monastic life to a life of canons right a different type of life that's how it used to be understood after the reformation it changed and it became used to describe the transfer of ecclesiastical property the property of the church similar to the waqf system to laypersons putting it back on the market freeing it up and this happened en masse in England, especially, but also in continental Henry Europe. Henry VIII famously did that. Um, he took a lot of church land and well, he actually gave it to, off to his rich buddies rather than to um, just there you go. regular people in the street, <laughs> regular peasants. It was his uh, the barons and earls of his... Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Right. So that's what secularization actually meant after the Reformation. Once we get to modernity, secularization shifts again and takes on a final meaning, which is the universal ground from which theological discourse is generated and that means that it's false consciousness it's not true because the secular is what's real and mm -hmm. from the secular there are religious people who produce or generate theological ideas right and from which it is gradually emancipated itself so religion is now freeing itself from itself right it's it's becoming more into the uh well let's put it this way hmm. secularism produces the true religion the enlightened religion the tolerant religion the acceptable religion right so religion 
in again, this is secularism in the modern time, is freeing itself from its, uh, we could say, barbaric past or its pre-modern past, and it's being redeemed by undergoing this change in which it is amenable to state interests, it is quote-unquote enlightened and tolerant because it concedes, it concedes the idea that it is not the real, it is not the background, it is not the default, but rather it is something that is superimposed on top of the real, which is society and uh, the social space. So if we take we take ideas from humanism from the Renaissance and the idea of nature from the Enlightenment and the idea of history from Hegel, and that's what leads to this shift of secularism throughout yeah, I, I think politically the big change uh, used to me the earthquake in the world was the French Revolution in 1789, which in, in a real way was the birth of political secularism, I would argue, and the crushing or the attempted destruction of the Catholic Church, mm. or at least it's pushing in, into the, the private realm very, very much so the persecution of Catholic priests and nuns on a huge scale. I, th I think, and, and that's the backdrop, I think, to the way the French state treats Muslims. It's not, mm. although there's particular animus against Islam, this is true, but there, there is form. The, 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 mm. the French mm. state has been here before uh, with the Catholic Church, and it is continuing a, a trajectory that has existed since 1789 and the war on faith, basically, that came from uh, the revolutionaries of the French Republic. Yes. And that, that's another holdover too, actually, the whole quote-unquote liberating or the transfer of ecclesiastical property to the barons and, and whatnot was actually another continuation that happened in the colonial period once the Europeans came to Muslim lands and they yeah. saw the waqf system. They're like, oh, well, this is the same thing. Uh, so we're going to bust up the waqfs and redistribute it to our buddies, uh, just like we just finished doing in Europe proper. Um, so the khulasa or the 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 overall thing, what we've tried to show and what Esed has tried to show and we've tried to elaborate upon is that secularism is not neutral. Secularism is not just a space that is defined by absence, the absence of religion or the absence of uh, state support for religion. It is a movement and a hegemonic political project that has particular metaphysics, a particular understanding of human being, a particular understanding of what rights are, and a particular imperative to support certain uh, certain formations of government in order to protect those rights, in order to produce a certain acceptable form of religiosity and religion, nay, actually creates the category of religion, whereas before it was known as truth, in order to manage it and to uh, make it adhere to its view of the world. And Allah knows best. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed um, for that, uh, Tom. Uh, just a couple of things. This is the book um, that uh, Imam Tom has been talking about, Formations of the Secular. Very interesting book indeed. I've got my uh, bookmarks uh, all the way through it. Um, th there's actually another book which um, I just wanted to um, mention. It's this one, a little known book, but a very important one. It's called Just and Painful, A Case for the Corporal Punishment of Criminals, second edition by a guy called uh, Graham Newman, um, who is actually a very distinguished professor in Albany in New York State in America. He's one of America's leading criminologists, actually. You can look him up on uh, Wikipedia, um, look at his bio. But this is actually an argument that, that, uh, that what is now the Western form of punishment, basically locking people up in cages for decades is far more um it, it, to say that is more humane than uh what he would see as the kind of the quick um punishment the moral superiority of retribution as he calls it um it, it is is an arbitrary moral decision and he actually says that pain is not necessarily evil and that corporal punishment actually uh is more effective and more humane 
when looked at objectively rather than from a kind of uh, a secular um, liberal perspective. So this is a remarkable, I, I've often wanted to do a video on this one day, I will, God willing, um, but it's very controversial, just and painful, a case for the corporal punishment of criminals. Actually, it was it was um, a, another a Muslim uh, writer who recommended this book in one of his videos. So I do recommend that. Um, and lastly, um, uh, Imam Tom has a, a fantastic YouTube channel, uh, if you don't know about it, entitled Utika Masjid, which I will link to in the description below. Please subscribe. Uh, I'm sure you won't regret it. I certainly haven't. And um, and that is it. So thank you very much indeed, Imam Tom, for your observations and your uh, thoughts on this. Uh, inshallah, you'll be back one day to continue um, your discussion. So um, thank you very much indeed. Inshallah. Thank you so much. Take care. Until next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.